host everyone welcome to the charmak podcast this is your host kushal nehra all right my guest today is preeti kasireddy preeti thanks for coming on the podcast excited to be here all right preeti so as you're coming on the podcast for the first time i'll request you to tell everybody a bit about yourself so let's let's get started uh sure so i'm sort of a bunch of different things i'm an investor i'm an entrepreneur um i previously worked at Andreessen Horowitz that's where i kind of started my career in tech um i was a investor there on the deal team um and that was what motivated me to get into entrepreneurship because obviously my job was to meet thousands of entrepreneurs every year and and decide whether we want to invest in their company um and then after i left and i left Andreessen to teach myself how to code and become a software engineer so that eventually i can build my own company um so i taught myself how to code then i joined coinbase as a software engineer and after that i uh went to start up start my own crypto company and did that for a couple of years ultimately we decided to shut it down because we felt like we were a little bit too early to market and since then i've been exploring other things um over the past year and a half just things i'm really passionate about like dance and fitness um and also just doing a lot of lot of education around crypto yeah so everybody who's listening to this right now you know just just listen to how many things she's explored and then i'm just sitting here in my life like what the hell have i done in my life <laughs> all right so preeti i'm going to so obviously today's talk was focused on ethereum but like I just wanted to start with this question and I know uh, you're going to be like why is he asking this but so when I was reading your you know your your essay on blockchain on ethereum so so you started with something which is uh, which is a technical explanation so I wanted to ask this and I want you to explain this because you start with a blockchain is a cryptographically secure transactional singleton machine with shared state now what does that mean so if i was a layman and i would go to your website and i was going to read this right so i'm going to go on ethereum and this is the first part of it maybe the third or fourth paragraph so so if i was a layman i know you explain it but if i was to ask you to maybe you know dumb it down for maybe a beginner who's just exploring they just want to know what ethereum is or what blockchain is so how would you explain that to them yeah so i So if you're not a computer scientist or a programmer sometimes it's hard to understand what a state machine is but um in very very simple term what ethereum is it's is a, it's a state machine and a state machine is just something that keeps track of some kind of underlying state so for example a database like it it could be a database that keeps track of um data and as that data changes there's state transitions happening to that data. So at a very fundamental level, Ethereum is a state machine, so it keeps track of state. Um and it's a globally accessible state machine. So it's not just a state machine that lives on one person's computer or one company's computers. It lives um in a decentralized way across many many computers around the world and they all share copies of the state machine. and so everyone has the same copy of the state machine and everyone can access this canonical truth that exists in the state machine so ethereum is quote unquote a globally accessible state machine where everyone can not only see the data that exists in that machine but they can also validate that all of the state transitions that are happening on that machine are valid because the other property of ethereum is that you know if you have a traditional state machine that's owned by a centralized entity then that centralized entity decides what state changes get logged into that machine with ethereum the state ch- transitions have to be um agreed upon by the group of people that are maintaining that machine so the network of peers and so adding that part in so ethereum is a globally accessible state machine with a decentralized consensus mechanism meaning that um there's a mechanism where we can all come to an agreement on what the state changes are that happen on that system and so that's why ethereum calls itself like a world computer because it's effectively this computer that anyone in the world can access and it's globally accessible um and decentralized 
All right. So, so, so now I get it even better now that you've explained it because uh, you, in your blog, you write about something of a genesis state and then you go into the final state. So, so you, you use a particular word, blank slate. Now I'm used to uh, neuroscience and uh, I understand blank slate from a very typical uh, neuroscience or a philo uh, philosophy point of view where a blank slate would be, obviously, uh, that's a very different debate where whether human beings are a blank slate or, or tabula rasa sort of a thing. So, so when we talk about blank slates from a computing sense, what are we talking about? Um, you mean genesis state? Yeah, the genesis yeah. state. Yeah, genesis state. So like we, like we said, so a state machine is something that keeps track of state but you have to start somewhere, right? Like, it's not like um, there's all of a sudden gonna, we're just gonna shove all this data into the state machine and say, this is the start. So the genesis state for any blockchain, so it's not just Ethereum, but any blockchain system has a genesis state, which is basically the, the starting state at, at which that blockchain started. So the first block that ever gets mined or the first transaction that ever gets created, um, that's, Called the genesis state, and then every 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 transaction that happens after that creates a state transition, and that's how the state machine evolves over time. Um, and so, Bitcoin has a genesis state, right? So, Bitcoin's genesis state is basically the first block that was ever mined on Bitcoin. Ethereum's genesis state is the same thing: the first block that was mined on Ethereum. Um, and the genesis state typically doesn't have any user transactions, but it's just like instigating all the variables, all of the, the variables that we want to set for that state machine. All right, got it. So so I'm going to be asking you questions because uh, uh, to be very honest, uh, I come come to this from a very inquisitive point of view. Like, yeah. I come from this uh, from a person who does not understand this. So I just like to read things and then I have a lot of questions. So th that's where I'm coming from. So you might be thinking, like, what the hell is he asking? Why is he asking such dumb questions? But, but I'm trying to do the role of that one person who actually does not get it. So so my job is to, to ask you questions from... Uh, from that person's point of view. And then maybe I'll ask you the questions where, you know, so I was reading about the criticisms of Ethereum and, and crypto in general. So maybe we can put it uh, from uh, that, that bit on the latter half of the discussion. Sure. Uh, but uh, so here's the thing now. So th another thing that, that I wanted to understand from you. So, so you, you said that Ethereum uses a mechanism called a ghost protocol so so what is a ghost protocol so from what i understood was this is some sort of a decentralized module where everything is working in a decentralized way is that is that what it is ghost protocol is it's part of how ethereum achieves consensus um and so it's 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 just a mechanism that ethereum uses again so we talked about state machine right and we talked about state transitions happening um, on Ethereum. And for every one of these state transitions to happen and be marked on the blockchain, we have to have a mechanism by which we all agree that that state chain is valid. Um, and that's called consensus algorithms, typically. And Ethereum um, uses something called the ghost protocol to achieve that consensus. All right. So, so, so this would I, I, so the right word would not be decentralized. It would be something else then. So so I guess I'm just trying to think of a word. Uh, maybe not. So uh, now here's the thing. Now, if I was to come to you and say, give me a practical application of Ethereum in the real world, what would that practical application be? If you had to come to me and say, what's the practical application of Ethereum so let's say, in the world? Yeah. So let's say if I'm a company now, yeah. I, I want to understand this technology and I want to use it for my my business module or something of that sort. Can, can this kind of a, can the blockchain protocol be used inside a company or inside? Like I said, I'm going to be asking you very naive questions is because I'm literally coming from a very naive perspective. Yeah. So, I mean, you have to kind of zoom out and figure out like why why ethereum was built the way it is and if you and so i think it's important to start to compare it to your traditional company's architecture so when you have um a, a an application that's built in a very traditional way centralized way what you have is you have a database that the company owns where they store the data 
And then you have backend logic, which um, defines the business logic of the application. And then you have the front end, which defines the UI and UX layer of the application. The front end communicates with the back end, the back end communicates with the database. And all of this code is centrally hosted by the company on either AWS or on their own hosting um, services or whatnot. Now with Ethereum, what happens is you don't have this, uh, you completely remove the centralized entity. So instead of you writing the backend code on your own servers, you're writing the backend code as smart contracts. And those smart contracts are hosted on the Ethereum blockchain, which is a globally accessible database, right? We talked about how Ethereum is a globally accessible state machine. So you're hosting your backend code on this globally accessible database. And now what, why would you do this? Like, why would you ever run an application on a globally accessible database instead of running it on a centralized service? And it comes down to a few things. Like if you look at how a centralized application is built, there can be some, sometimes where it's just not a good way to build certain types of applications. For example, the fact that it's centralized means that the company that owns the database um, and the servers, they have control over all the data. They can choose what to do with it. They can choose to delete it. They can choose to change it. They can do, choose to sell that data and use it however they wish. Um, the users don't have control over the data. Um, another downfall of a centralized architecture is that they can also choose to censor the data, censor um, the data or the users, right? So they can choose um, to provide X person their services, but ban X person from accessing their services. And if you've used Twitter or any social media, you know that bans and and um, bans and things like that happen all the time on existing social media. Um, and then there's like there's um, uh, other reasons why centralized architectures could be a weakness, um, things like uh, more risk for downtime. So because, for example, all the code is hosted on something like AWS, if AWS goes down, then the entire service goes down and every, every application that lives on AWS goes down. Um, so there's, there's a few big, um, uh, negative parts, negative things about doing some things in a very centralized way. And this becomes especially important when it comes to things like financial services, right? Because if a bank, for example, which is centralized, has this power to not only store all your data and keep track of all your data, but also censor the data if they want to um, and, and um, and have that much control, then they can, they basically control who gets financial freedom and economic freedom, right? Because they're controlling the money. And without money, like you don't have, you can't function as a human being without financial freedom. And so especially in like financial services, this kind of architecture has a lot of downfalls. And that's why you saw something like Bitcoin get created because Bitcoin was originally invented to basically fight the central banks because they, Satoshi in the white paper was very clear that he feels that the fact that we have to have all these intermediaries exist if we want to send a payment from one person to the other makes no sense. Um, not only does it allow for things like censorship, but it also prevents things like microtransactions from happening because there's just so many middlemen in between that you can't really do microtransactions because the fees itself are probably cost more than the microtransaction, right? So that was kind of, that's kind of where the, the original use case for something like a blockchain came from. It was like, can we provide financial services without centralized intermediaries? And then just like any technology, you know, it gets created for one thing and then it can, people start to think about how can we use this for other things as well. And so that's kind of where things like Ethereum came along and they're like, okay, can we take this concept of a blockchain and build um, not just decentralized money, but other types of applications on top. Um, and that's where the concept of, you know, a smart contract came into play. And now we can use smart contract to basically encode any business logic we want to and host it on this decentralized database. 
Now, does that mean that every application in the world, we should go and turn it into a smart contract? No, because a blockchain also has a lot of trade-offs, right? We'll get into that probably later, but there's just a lot of trade-offs of, of having a state machine that's globally accessible. It's inefficient, it's slow, it's expensive. So then it comes down to thinking about, okay, like we have this database that we can um, write smart contracts on, but what are the use cases where it's actually useful? Where where do we care about like censorship resistant, uh, resistance, data integrity, um, and things like that. And so that's where things like DeFi and stuff really got created because they're basically trying to reinvent the financial world on Ethereum using the blockchain. I got it. This is actually very fascinating. And I'll tell you why, because again, my, my background is philosophy. And so the moment you said social media, I got thinking. So this is very interesting because I'll tell you why when I observe companies like Twitter or Facebook or all these big tech giants is my biggest problem with them is that I've always noticed that these companies tend to have too much centralized power where, especially when it comes to issues like maybe deplatforming people. Now it's, it's almost as if there's a team of human beings sitting on top and looking at everybody from top and looking at the world. And so what you're saying is that if there was a platform, which was a social media platform, which was based on the principles of Bitcoin, that these people will lose that power in a way? Can you repeat that? So let's say if I made a social media platform yeah. on the principles of Bitcoin, how yeah. would it be different from Twitter? Like, like I give you an example, right? Deplatforming is a huge issue on yeah, Twitter. Yeah, yeah. You just yeah. have a bunch of people on top deciding what I'm supposed to think, do, say. Now, maybe I don't agree with their worldview, right? And the biggest problem these days is you you lure them in, right? Like social media is like drugs, right? So the drug addict is getting you addicted to the drug. And then once you're in, the drug addict says, oh, I don't like that you have X amount of drugs. You can only have Y amount of drugs. And then you don't know what to do and you're kind of stuck. So is Bitcoin in that sense, maybe if the principles of Bitcoin were used in a social media platform, could that be a solution to that? Um, I would say yes. Uh, I do think we can definitely use the principles of decentralized, building a decentralized social network. Um, I don't think it's the it's the use case that will gain adoption in this cycle yet. But I do think that is the future that we're going towards where instead of something like Twitter or Facebook or Instagram or whatever, um, having that much control over the network, over the data, over the users, we will likely start to create architectures where that control and ownership over the users is um, moved away from the center and towards the edges. So instead of the Zuckerbergs of the world having that much control and power. Um, it's the end users who get to control the network collectively together. Um, and I do believe we're going to move into that realm. And you're seeing early iterations of that happen with things like BitClout. I don't know if you've heard of seen like BitClout, which is basically trying to build like somewhat like a decentralized Twitter type thing. Um, but I think we're, we're still probably at least like a couple, two to five years away from something like that existing. All right. Okay, cool. So so I'm just going to ask you a live question because I think it, it was interesting. So somebody has asked us, Suraj Parmar has asked you this question, any prospects for UPI? So so are you aware of the UPI platform? Yes. Of the yes. So any prospects for UPI or EUPI to be built on a blockchain on CBDC's good? So I think UPI is really, really cool. I think what India did with Adar and UPI and all of that stuff is very innovative and very forward thinking. Um, I'm not a huge proponent of CBDCs, mostly because CBDCs, I think Naval had a really good tweet about this where he talked, said CBDCs are basically the opposite of cryptocurrency because it's like a centralized bank or a central government that manages this database and the database contains um, access, like the, it, it, it encodes like a monetary um, policy, I guess, on the blockchain. And it's completely opposite of cryptocurrency, which is supposed to be managed by the people and the network, right? CBDCs are controlled by the governments. So it, 
just doesn't, it feels antithetical almost to crypto. And in fact, CBDCs will allow for more surveillance than that exists already. So it's almost moving in a backwards direction. I don't think we can stop governments from trying to create CBDCs. I think that's going to be a real thing, but I don't believe that they should be bucketed in the same thing as crypto. They're two different, very, very different things. All it's right, like so someone now, taking a tool and using it for the wrong thing and calling it something else, you know? All right. So now I'm going to get into a lot of doubts that I had about um, the technology itself from, from a sustainability perspective. So again, whatever little I've understood about this from my reading and I've been reading for a while, basically thanks to Balaji, you know, whatever Balaji would point me out to. And then I would read what Balaji says and then I would go and read the criticism of that. So what I've understood is that when it comes to the blockchain model itself, the, the standard criticism they always give is that there is too much investment in the hardware technology and the energy consumption, again, is largely driven by fossil fuels. By, but basically, it might pose a financial cost burden uh, in this entire atmosphere of climate change and stuff like that. So so what what does Ethereum or crypto in general have to say about that? And I've read a lot of articles that keep hammering on this. And like I keep reading about this. So you're saying how does Ethereum um, uh, address the energy argument? The yeah. energy argument and even a very heavy investment from the hardware point of view. Yeah. So it's one of those things where decentralization doesn't come for free, right? Decent, like if you want decentralization, you have to pay a cost. And so the, the hardware fees and the energy that you have to supply to do something like proof of work costs money, but no one said decentralization comes for free, right? Mm -hmm. um, so I would say that I don't really, I don't really find the energy arguments and the hardware arguments that compelling, um, mostly because I think you have, if we're gonna make that argument, we have to do like an apples to apples comparison. I mean, like how much energy and resources do central banks and governments and large, um, large retail banks, how much, how much uh, in infrastructure and hardware do they consume to provide the services that, that they provide, right? So you have to kind of do an apples to apples comparison to really say like, okay, compared to this, like how does Bitcoin compare? And then secondly, um, that's kind of what makes Bitcoin really proof of work really, really beautiful because you know that every block had, in order for that block to be mined, there had there was energy spent. So it's like, you know that it's, it's backed by all of this energy that was expended in order to create that block. And that's what creates value for it, right? And so I think, I think, Proof of work is actually a very beautiful protocol in, in that way. Um, and thirdly, we're gonna we're gonna get better at cr at creating renewable energy sources. I mean, when, I don't know if anyone watched the Elon Musk talk on B money, but he kind of talked about how like he is optimistic about renewable energy sources being um, a real thing for Bitcoin mining in the near future. So I think. Um, the energy argument is going to slowly die out once we start to have more renewable energy sources that miners use. In fact, I believe a bunch of miners already use renewable energy sources. Yeah, a lot of them still use coal mine, um, but um, renewable energy sources are definitely becoming more popular amongst miners. So I just, I don't, I find that um, that argument often just like, it's like it's like people who are mad about crypto and they just need something to say, you know. I will be very honest with you. So when I was so it's very simple. So it doesn't matter which browser you use. You just go and type crypto criticism. That's all I did. And, and I read a lot because, uh, look, at, at the end of the day, if I'm doing a podcast, it's my duty, right, to go and understand what, what are the so-called criticisms of it because I'm new to this. So I kept on reading and there were two, three points that keep popping up again and again and again. And this was the number one point. So this one was like, there is huge investment in the hardware. 
And this, the second point was that, oh, what about the climate change aspect, the climate change aspect? So I'll give you my sense. The first thing that I actually asked myself when I was doing this was, is, hang on, it's as if the other sources that we use right now are, you know, having no carbon footprint as such. I mean, we have a carbon footprint in literally everything we do. So yes. what needs to be shown is that when I do thing A, this is the carbon footprint. And when I do thing B, this is the carbon footprint. And what was interesting was that in none of the articles, and these are long essays that I was reading, not even a single one could give me that, which was very interesting. It was as if, you know, I need a stick to beat them with. Like, I'm, I'm no, uh, I don't know how to say it. I'm no crypto bro. I'm just an outsider looking at it and trying to understand it from a genuinely open-minded perspective. But I found it very interesting that even when in my research, I could not find any hard data when it came to criticism. Yeah, it's it's very um, uh, oftentimes very weak arguments. And then when you dig in, you realize that they're just kind of parroting what everyone else is saying. Um, and if you just if you dig in even more, you'll start to realize that there's smart people who've come up with counter arguments to every criticism that's been um, out there. So you just have to keep, keep digging and look past the surface stuff. I mean, this is true for anything, right? No matter what you do that's new and novel, um, there's always people on the other side who are going to criticize it and say, this, this makes no sense. This doesn't work. This is too expensive. This is bad for humanity. Um, but like if once you get down the crypto rabbit hole, you start to realize that, yeah, there's, there's a lot of fluff and, and bad stuff that happens in crypto on the surface, but at, underneath there's still very genuine builders who are building very, very cool things. Um, and uh, and people, those people are not out there on Twitter, like, you know, selling themselves because they're too busy building, you know. Fair enough. All right. Somebody has again asked this question, Preeti. So someone, Ashutosh Kumar has asked, won't there be a downside to a decentralized thick system making things a little more chaotic? It's a great question. Um, I there's there, The reality is, is that A, like not everything needs to be decentralized. Uh, there are times where centralizing services is just more efficient. And you'll notice that even um, even sometimes systems that start off decentralized end up realizing that it is a little bit more efficient to do certain parts of that service more centralized and maybe offer just the core part that's decentralized. So I think a good way to think about this is that decentralization exists on a, on a spectrum. I'm not a decentralized maxi, which means that like, you believe that every single thing should be decentralized. And if it's not decentralized enough, you think it shouldn't exist type of thing. Um, I think decentralization exists on a spectrum. Some things, for example, like sound money, yeah, you want that to be as decentralized and secure as possible. But there's other things that could be somewhere in the middle or even like centralized, right? So I don't think we'll end up in a world where things are chaotic because as these networks get launched, people will just start to figure out what things are just better off being a little bit more centralized and what are what things are better off being decentralized. All right, so a few more queries. So again, as I was going on my rabbit hole of Ethereum, so so there were a few articles. So 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 there were few criticisms about the cost. Uh, what was that word you used in your article? Was that the gas? Yes. Uh, yeah. Yes. Yeah. So, so basically, the charge of operating the system or running the system, whatever you're going to be charged while you're running the system. So, one of the criticisms of Ethereum that I found over there was that it's slightly more expensive. So, what what would you say to that? That's one thing that stood out again when I was reading about it. Yeah. So, for anyone who doesn't understand gas, the idea of gas is that. Um, so we have this, we talked about how we have Ethereum as a globally accessible state machine. And in order for that state machine to make state transitions, we have to, the people who are running that machine um, have to come to a consensus on that state transition. State transition. And um, obviously you have to create some kind of incentives in order to incentivize people to do the work of validating that state transition. 
And so there's there's a fee for every transaction um, that that happens on the blockchain. And that fee on, in Ethereum's case is um, represented in what's called gas. And so every time you send a transaction, you have to pay a gas fee. Um, and so compared to a centralized application or a centralized database where a transaction where you can um, make state changes to a centralized database very quickly and very cheaply, the same can't be said about something like Ethereum because again, there's a fee for every transaction. And um, as more and more people use the blockchain, the fees get higher typically. And the reason is because um, there's only so many transactions that the blockchain can process in a minute or in a second. And that's because again, we like for a straight transition to happen, we have to reach a consensus on that state transition. And there's, it's only, there's only so many transactions that we can process in a second. So when there's a lot, a lot of activity happening on the blockchain, what happens is that the fees go up because if you want your transaction to be included faster than other transactions, then you can pay a higher fee and the miners will take your transaction first because they want to make the most money from mining these transactions onto the blockchain. So as there's more transactions happening, the fees go up, um, which causes the cost of transactions to go up. And that's what you saw happen in late 2020 and 2021, where Ethereum's gas fees just like skyrocketed because DeFi applications start to blow up on Ethereum. And these DeFi applications have a lot of transactions happening on them. So it congested the blockchain. And that's why people were paying like insane fees to have that transaction, have that, to have their transactions go through. Um, and so that's another thing you want to think about. Like if you're thinking about building a, a decentralized application, it's like, do you, do you think that it, it, do you believe that it's worth the cost of, of building your app on something like Ethereum where every trend, every, the user has to literally pay for every transaction. So, or is it just better to build it in a centralized way? So that's the whole point. So actually, again, this was one of the criticisms following up to it that, I don't know, who was that guy whose article did I read? I think it was Jeremy Rubin. Yeah, it was Jeremy Rubin. And his point was about, so his claim in that article basically was that, ETH, the asset, uh, and not Ethereum as in at, at the state of the network will go yes. to zero. And his whole thing was that ETH uh, and the, the ethereal value of ETH. So, so I've kept a quote from that article. So what basically he was saying is if all the applications and the transactions can run without ETH, there's no reason for ETH to be valuable unless the miners enforce some sort of a racket to require users to pay in ETH. Now, so what would you say to something like that? Um, I disagree. I think if Ethereum as a platform succeeds, um, then there'll naturally be demand for ETH. And yeah, theoretically, maybe Ethereum will make a protocol upgrade that would allow miners to accept fees in any token, but that's not true today. And it's unlikely that that proposal would get passed because ETH holders have an incentive to keep ETH, to maintain the value in ETH, right? Like why would they, why would ETH holders want to make a protocol change where miners can get paid in any token? There's really no incentive for that. It doesn't really align the um, incentives of the people who manage the Ethereum network. So I don't believe, A, I don't think that change will, is likely to happen. And so it feels like a non-question non in my opinion. All right, okay. So another one was very interesting where I read an article where they said Ethereum is a victim of its own success because it's far slower and more expensive. So, so, how, uh, so we, we dealt with the expense part, but what about being slower? Yeah, I mean, like I said, so because uh, everyone in the world has to, everyone that's running the network has to reach a consensus on the transactions, there's only so many transactions we can process in a second, um, unlike something like a traditional database where we can process a lot, a lot of transactions per second. 
Um, so in that way, transactions are slower. For example, if you go to Uniswap or any DeFi application and you, you try to transact, you'll see that it doesn't happen instantaneously. It'll say pending for quite a while until the blockchain has actually accepted that transaction and mined it into a block. And that's another trade-off of building a decentralized application. It's like, do you want, are you okay with having slow transaction times? Um, granted, not every blockchain has slow transaction times. Some blockchains make the trade-off of being a little less decentralized or a little less secure to offer, offer faster transaction times. So things like Binance Smart Chain, right? Binance Smart Chain basically forked Ethereum and they changed the consensus algorithm so that it's a lot faster. So instead of a decentralized set of miners mining blocks, they decided that it's gonna be just um, 21 validators who are assigned for mining blocks. And that makes it a lot easier to reach consensus on transactions. And so the throughput for Binance Smart Chain is a lot higher, allowing for faster transaction times. So you do have some blockchains that allow for faster transactions than Ethereum, but they're also a lot more centralized. All right, so another philosophical query, because that's just my nature. So I'm gonna ask you a few philosophical queries. So I've always wondered about uh, something like this. Now, I know there are obviously contracts, but what I find, I don't know. I guess I'm born and raised in India, which is a trust deficit society, unlike, uh, you know, in America, where where I think it's it's a trust uh, when it comes to trust, America and India is slightly different. In India, when we are raised, you know, everybody is taught basically do not trust anyone. Always have a always have a sneaky look on everyone. That that's how we start. Our baseline is I don't trust you. Now let me see, let me figure you out, and then I'll go. On the other hand, when I used to live in America, the biggest difference in America and India was people their by default setting was I trust you. And then if you break my trust, I will change my attitude towards you. And in India, our by default setting is that I don't trust you and I'm going to be very slow and steady in my functions and in, in my ways of living my life. So so how would uh, a technology like blockchain or Ethereum, how, how would it deal with these kinds of sociological problems or, or do they even think about these things when they design these things? Uh, it might be a very stupid question, but I had to ask it. In terms of do the do blockchain networks think about the cultural differences of trust? No. So so how do they handle the trust deficit, right? Because you're entering into a contract. So so how how does the, this technology deal with the person who's signing a contract with the other end? So how do how do you manage all those? Because it's basically from what I understand, crypto is kind of away from the focus of the state. Because in the case of regular currency exchange or regular exchange, there's always some sort of a governmental authority that is looking under it, right? In the case of crypto, there's basically this parallel board. So how do we create accountability in a system like that? The accountability happens because of the ledger that the ledger that represents the truth, right? Um, so you're not necessarily, there's no one to trust. You're, you're trusting code and you're trusting a bunch of people to, to behave in a certain way based on economic incentives. And so there is no need to have accountability in that way. It's encoded into the protocol, right? Um, so with Ethereum and smart contracts, it's like once you code up a certain agreement between, let's say we have an agreement that every time um, every time you do something, I send you $5 or something. Um, there's no need for us to enforce that contract because the blockchain enforces it because a, it's, it's written in code and then that code is enforced by a decentralized network of peers. So I'm not fully sure what you mean by accountability. I don't know. See, so, yeah. so my point is if, if I'm entering into a contract with someone, in a normal state where some sort of a authority is involved. All I know is, again, it's, it's because it, it's because you, you live in America, I live in India, so my mind works very differently. I'm like, if I'm entering into some kind of a contract with someone, which agency is the enforcing agency here? So you see what I'm trying to say? So in the case yeah, there's of regular no, contract. There's no enforcing agency, right? Um, it's decentralized. So the blockchain itself, problem. the blockchain itself is the enforcing agency. Um, and so you have to trust the code effectively. 
And that's why, you know, there's a mantra, you know, trust, trust the code instead of trusting people. All right, fair enough. So this is where, so again, this was me trying to understand it from my perspective. Uh, I know you might be like, what the hell is he talking about? But uh, trust me, from where I come, everything about this technology is new. And this is, uh, this is why I- No, I, no, no. I, and, I mean, I, I, I can understand why. I, I'm not saying that it should be intuitive to anyone because, I mean, human, humans revolve around trust. Without trust, like we wouldn't have relationships. We wouldn't have like family structures. We wouldn't have any kind of organizational structures. Like a company relies on trusting its employees to do its work, right? Like everything relies on trust. So it's, it's very natural to be like, why, how can we live in a world where we just trust the code and we don't have humans actually enforcing this stuff. But that is the, the kind of, that is, that is essentially what crypto is trying to do. It's trying to, it's not necessarily trying to remove trust, but it's trying to move the trust to the edges. So instead of a single entity holding all of that trust, like a government, removing that trust to the edges where people are given a little bit of power to um, uh, maintain the network themselves in a decentralized way. Does that make sense? You know, yeah, yeah, I get it. So you know what crypto reminds me of? So it's very funny, but it's very common in India. So I'll tell you, so there's this thing in India where black money is circulated. Yeah. So there's a parallel economy in India. So you have the white money economy and then you have the black money economy. So so in uh, I don't know if it's a Hindi word or a Gujarati word. They're called uh, they're called basically angariyas or, or something of that sort. So basically what the system is that let's say somebody is staying in Gujarat, somebody is staying in Mumbai and they need to do a transaction. Now, nobody goes anywhere. So it's basically a it's a small piece of paper where there's a person over here, there's a person over there. And that person on both ends, they just take a small fee. And all you need to do is give money to that person. And this money is connected to that person. And then they give the person over here. So this, uh, and it's a very decentralized system. Everybody is dealing it their own way. There is no state involved. It is an entirely trust-based system. It's basically mm -hmm. your word of mouth is literally your trust. In this case, obviously, you're, you have designed it and your code is your agreement but in that state there is no code it's just a piece of paper and why i'm telling you this is because when i was reading about this it actually reminded me of those those people which i used to see in my childhood because there was literally no state it is a completely parallel world where yes there are cheaters and the punishment of when you cheat is basically next time if you want to deal in that network you cannot deal in that network the network won't allow you because you cheated right so that's how that entire not network works. There is no government interference there. Zero government interference. It's it's all black money. So I don't know if you've ever heard of something that that's all. But when I was reading this, I was like, this is like a digital angari or something of that sort. <laughs> yeah, no, it's it's very like that's a very good analogy actually, um, because like you said, like if someone cheats, then they they can't use the system. Same thing with crypto, right? Um, if a miner acts maliciously then everyone sees that and they no longer want him to be a minor and they yeah, won't so, yeah yeah so th this is exactly how i understood crypto after all my reading that's all i could come down to because i guess and i'll tell you why i, I understood it like that because i belong to an industry that is basically i don't know how extremely involved in the angaria system <laughs> so i'm one of the rare people who's not involved in it but I know this for a fact that I literally grew up in a textile industry, right? And textiles and many industries in India were basically a lot of black money used to float. And they and I used to see these people operate like that. I've seen people, all they had was a small book and a piece of paper. And they'd be like, I gave so much money to so, so XYZ person on this day. You have to trust me. And the other person says, yes, I trust you. And that's how the entire network and this is millions and millions of dollars just floats like that in that system. But now, now let's come into the biggest, you know, I don't know how to put it, the, the elephant in the room. Every time blockchain, any kind of technology related to blockchain is discussed, it's always about, oh my God, national security. How do state, how does the state handle this? So basically, every time you decentralize power, the, look at what's happening around the world when it comes to COVID, right? The state has found the biggest thing to do in your life, lockdowns. And, and no matter what happens, they don't want to let go of it. Now, 
in a in a system or a technology like crypto basically in many ways the state becomes useless it's it's all people doing transactions by themselves and the state is just sitting in the corner figuring out what the hell am i going to do so how yeah. so and in in a scenario like that now, now let me put it to you so let's say i am working in the government of india and i am working in national security or raw or ib whatever and somebody pitches crypto to me so what he's the first question they're going to be said so are you telling me pakistanis are going to deal with indians and i can't figure that out how do you convince them how do you convince the state yeah how do you convince the state not to interfere well that's a good question i mean that's what you're seeing happen now right where they're trying to interfere with what's the only way they can interfere they can interfere with the regulation right they can basically say you can't do this you can't build crypto you you have you have to be regulated um and so that's that's a natural reaction for the state because what ha- if crypto becomes mainstream then they lose all their power to your point and so no one wants to lose their power right um but in terms of crypto and what they need to do to actually allow them not to get regulated is that it needs to be decentralized because if for example the reason that the state can regulate it is right now is because they can generally identify who's building these protocols and so if you do something wrong and you don't follow the rules you can go to jail um whereas if we can build these protocols and deploy the protocols in a way where people don't really know who built them or what not and this is where bology's idea of a pseudonymous economy he started talking about the pseudonymous economy like 4 or 5 years ago and at first it didn't make sense to me i was like why would we have a pseudonymous economy why would anyone want to be pseudonymous right and now it makes sense um when the state comes clamping down on crypto with this regulation i think what you're going to see is going to see a lot of a lot more developers go and create pseudonymous usernames and launch protocols through that because how, how who's who's the government going to come after if they're if the protocol is launched under a pseudonymous name so the answer to the state um trying to clamp down is more decentralization basically is basically so how i've understood this in my life is um, since the technological revolution especially since the advent of the internet is this is how governments work the governments try to understand what the technology is by the time they figured that technology out that technology is obsolete and the tech the tech folks have come up with something new yes, and yeah. the government doesn't know how to catch up to it so eventually what the government does it it gets frustrated and it shuts everything down so what governments tend to do is they tend to throw the baby out with the bathwater that's how the, the government see if you're sitting in the government what do you like the most control otherwise what's the point right the governments are there to control our lives that's how i mean i don't know how to say it but my, my mom's side is all bureaucrats right i i see that control streak in them they they like to control things they like to be in control of everything that's happening and crypto is like the i don't know the kryptonite for government people so my only piece of advice to <laughs> to people who are involved in blockchain and crypto is learn to deal with government babus because the babus are coming for you and i know there's already some pushback uh, when i uh, at least in india now the supreme court has said no 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 hang on try and understand this but the the governments are going to be like no no we will launch our own cryptocurrencies if every government launches its own cryptocurrency then the whole point of a interconnected network isn't it kind of defeated defeated yeah exactly yep um it 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 doesn't make any sense like why why are they trying to launch like i said cbdcs right that's the government version of crypto and it's antithetical to crypto cbdcs are controlled they are centralized um they can be censored so because the C- the ledger that um maintains the supply of cbdcs is maintained by a central government they can decide that x person should not get access to some kind of financial service but y person can and so cbdcs are the opposite of crypto and i i don't think we should be championing championing them and saying oh the government is creating cbdcs let's let, that's a good thing okay so let me ask you another question from a viewer so somebody okay it's love Love has asked what are some blockchain applications in your opinion that will find massive traction in the next 5 to 10 years 
Yeah, so we're definitely entering, so crypto typically moves in cycles um, where there'll be a cycle of a lot of infrastructure that gets developed and then the next cycle we'll see more applications and then we'll go back to more. And then we realize that, oh wait, these applications don't scale or we have some problems. So we end up moving back to building infrastructure and then building apps again. So 2017 to 2020 was really an infrastructure phase where a lot of people focused on building scaling solutions, um, developer tooling and things like that to make the actual underlying um, plumbing of the network a lot more efficient, a lot more scalable. And in this next cycle, starting this year and next year and the next couple of years, I believe we'll see a lot more user-facing applications get built. Um, what specifically, I do think gaming is definitely going to be a big theme of this next cycle. You're starting to see that already with things like Axie Infinity and so forth. And that the idea of gaming is not gaming and crypto is not new. People have been talking about it for five to seven years now. It just it just wasn't right, the right time for the market. But now I believe gaming will be a huge, huge use case for crypto. Um, uh, obviously, we're seeing NFTs and DeFi. I think we're going to continue to see a lot of um, interesting things that created in decentralized finance and NFTs. Um, so besides DeFi, NFTs, and gaming, I mean, this is where we need more builders, right? We need more people to come in and figure out, like, what are the, the consumer-facing applications that we can build today? using the tools that we have. All right. So so a lot of people keep talking about, uh, they keep telling me to ask you about XRP. I mean, I don't know what exactly they want me to ask you about XRP, but all I see is please ask her about XRP, ask her uh, her views about uh, XRP. I don't really have views on XRP. I mean, XRP is, um, I, yeah, I don't really have views. It, it's... To me, I've found that the XRP crowd tends to be a little bit, um, what's the right way to frame this? Like almost like cult-like. And so I don't, I don't want to like really dig into that question because <laughs> yeah, I don't want to get like, I don't want to get, I don't want to get Twitter hate for saying something. <laughs> All right. Fair enough. Fair, fair enough. Okay. So somebody's asked, do crypto assets have the potential to create bubbles in the long run since they are not backed by anything tangible? Yeah, uh, they definitely do. And you probably, if you were, if you lived through the 2017 ICO boom, you saw that being a reality where there were so many tokens that had like crazy valuations. And if you look at now and a lot of them just fit and fizzled away and died. And so there are many, 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 many projects and tokens that have a bubble-like um, scenario, but that doesn't mean that there's also a lot of tokens that don't have that functionality and they actually do have, will accrue value in the long run um, on a meaningful basis. So it's, it's both. You'll have a lot of bubble-like assets and then you'll also have a lot of legit, like long-term really valuable things get created. So you just have to be very careful where you put your money. All right. So someone has asked, with blockchain kind of ledger systems, you cannot manipulate or change the data so easily. But since Ethereum data needs to be okayed, in quotes, by the owners, can we say that the owners can manipulate the data? No, because miners, miners can't, I don't know what he means, he or she means by owners, but I guess they mean the miners that are actually mining the blocks. Um, miners can't manipulate the data because it's the ledger is completely open and decentralized, right? Anyone can see what data is being added to the ledger. So if a miner, if a user sends a transaction and signs it with their private key, but the miner chooses to do something else instead of that transaction, everyone in the world can see that that's happening and they can immediately discredit that transaction or that state change. And so this happens on, this is encoded into the protocol where every, every transaction that's included in a block is validated before it's included in the block to ensure that the miner didn't um, fudge with it in any way. All right, so so same viewer has asked us, uh, so I guess what they meant was not the miners, the authorities who need to sign off on data. 
there's no authorities that need to sign off on data for a blockchain. All right. Yeah. Okay. All right. Cool. So now, Preeti, before I uh, before I uh, you know let you go, I just had one question. So you mentioned in the start that you're working on a lot of fitness stuff. Now let's talk about fitness because that is something that I do understand. <laughs> far more than blockchain so uh, wh what are you doing over there because i did see a few of your youtube videos but i could not uh, watch all of them so so could you tell us a little bit about that because you said you're exploring something in the rain in fitness and, and all those things yeah sure i've always been into like some some kind of fitness stuff i used to be an avid runner um and then i got more into weight training over the last few years and um more recently into but not gym dance. Um, and so I, yeah, I just, I've always just loved being physically active. Like I feel um, that if I don't do it in a day, then I just don't feel like myself. I feel like something's missing. And so for me, the way that outlet of, everyone needs an outlet, right? Um, and for me, um, that outlet is fitness where I can just uh, use my body and, learn how to get stronger, faster, um, and better. And yeah, so I lift um, on a consistent basis. And I also dance on a consistent basis. And it's taught me more about myself than anything else I've done in my entire life. Because um, the more deeper you get into any kind of physical art form, it, you realize that it requires not just the body, but the mind and also the soul the heart and so it really requires you to integrate all three um, in order to excel at anything physical and so i find that it's very very gratifying in that way all right so 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 again a viewer has asked this question have you considered creating a course for enthusiasts on blockchain technology and its use cases and its use cases specifically so i have a crypt mm -hmm. i have a free email course on crypto that if you go to my Twitter and it's on my pinned tweet, you can see the, the free course where I, I mostly focus on explaining the history of money and how banking evolved and then talking about how Bitcoin works because I think um, it's really important to understand the history of banking and how monetary policy has evolved, especially in the US, so that we can, because if you don't understand history, you can't understand sort of how um, the future will, will kind of lay, lay its ground, right? Um, but I don't have a, a free course on crypto's use cases yet. That could be more of a blog post than a course, but I'll consider creating one, something like that. Great. Awesome. Awesome. So, so Preetu, before we wrap things up, so what, what can we look forward uh, from your end? Well, what is there any particular project that you're working on right now that you want to talk about, which is going to be coming up in the new, near future, something of that sort? Yeah, it's a good question. So I'm um, I'm launching an Ethereum bootcamp where I teach developers how to build their first DApp on Ethereum. And the reason I'm doing it is because I feel like we definitely need a lot more builders in the space building things and less uh, marketing and hype. And we're basically close to reaching the enrollment capacity. So I don't think people who are interested will be able to join this first cohort. But if you're interested in something like that, definitely sign up for the wait list because I plan to do the bootcamp twice a year. Um, and it's an intensive bootcamp. Uh, it's like a coding, like, it's like a coding bootcamp, but for Ethereum where you learn how to build dApps. Um, so that's the a side project that I'm working on. And yeah, that's, that's the one I'll mention. Oh, awesome. Awesome. So, so guys, uh, I guess we'll wrap today's discussion up. So first of all, try and understand the aim. So when I, when I started this podcast, it was all about things that I find interesting and I want to talk about now. Um, if you found my questions to be a little too naive, I apologize, but I was genuinely curious. And I, when I'm curious, I tend to ask questions that I want to understand. Now, uh, the, if somebody thought that Kushal, how come you don't know anything about this technology? Well, that's the whole point. When you don't know much about a technology, you talk to people who do know about it. And that's how I learned every, every subject in my life. Like my subject is philosophy. <laughs> uh, I, I know a little bit about philosophy, so I could talk about that. But uh, it was an absolute pleasure talking to you, Preeti. Uh, and I hope to learning a lot from you. I'm going to be reading uh, 
everything that you write uh, with a lot of curiosity obviously from where i come from is a completely different subject i look at things from a very different perspective because i i'm not a technology guy i'm a philosophy guy so i just look at these things from a philosophical perspective not from a technology perspective but uh, it was an absolute pleasure talking to you and thanks once again for coming on the podcast thank you have a good day all right okay guys time to wrap today's discussion up uh, i'm going to leave preeti's website address in the description of the podcast so please go and visit her podcast website also i've left her twitter uh, uh, bio in the description of the podcast go there check her website out if you like what i'm doing over here please subscribe to the channel leave a comment on the video if you have any questions for preeti maybe you can send them across to me on email i'll forward it to her also become a member on youtube or subscribe on patreon or buy the merch or you know the drill i'll see you guys next time until then take care namaste goodbye